0: morning we're going to be looking at um, a man named Simon the Magician. And as I was thinking about magic and magicians, I was thinking about some friends of mine that in college would try to put on a little magical act. Now we know that most magic today is illusion, sleight of hand, things like that. In Bible times it was actually more demonic or satanic, and we'll talk about that even with Simon the Magician. But at faith we would have in about April this event that was called acts and snacks and the guys would put on the acts and they would do skits and shows and they would sing maybe and they would do all these kind of comedy routines and all the girls in the college would make snacks and bakes and things like that and so a couple of my friends decided they were going to do a magic act they had worked on some magic tricks they had been testing it out in the dorm and they decided they were going to do a magic trick and so they called people up on stage, it's in front of the entire campus, and they had a card trick about, um, it was very complex, and it was, you know, trying to figure out which card the person had in their hand. And they were funny, and they were entertaining, and getting the audience involved, and everything was going great until they pulled out the card, and they said, is this your card? And the person said, no. And then they pulled out another card, and they said, is this your card? And the person said, No. And they tried a third time, and they pulled out a card, and the person still said no. And they didn't quite have the trick down, um, the illusion that they were trying to trick people with. Um, throughout the years, there have been some uh, pretty famous uh, magicians. There have been some pretty famous tricks that have also gone wrong. Now, I was looking on the internet for an illustration about magic tricks that are gone wrong, but unfortunately, those usually end in the death or serious injury of a magician. So I decided not to share those with you today. But like I said, today, most magic tricks are illusion. They're sleight of hand. They're not really dealing with the spiritual realm. But we know from scripture that there is a God and there is also Satan. And many of the magic that's talked about in scripture, the magical elements, do deal with higher powers. But a lot of them come from the satanic realm. And so in Philip's Day, we meet this man named Simon the Magician. He was a man who lived in Samaria. He was um, using magical power, satanic power, really, to deceive the Samaritans into calling him great, into saying that he has power like God. But what's interesting about Simon is that he gives a confession of faith in our passage and it's very much debated even today about whether or not Simon was truly a Christian but as I look at this text and I'll admit this is a difficult text for us to look at this morning it would seem to me that Simon is giving an illusion of faith that as we examine his faith it may not be everything that it seems to be at first glance and what Luke is actually doing here is he's showing us within the book of Acts, those who actually are converted in the gospel. There are many Samaritans who hear the gospel. They understand the gospel. They receive the Holy Spirit. And he contrasts that with Simon, who again, like I said, is giving this illusion of faith. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not trying to kick anybody out of the kingdom. I don't want to cast doubt on anyone's salvation. I am not God. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter what I have to say. About Simon's faith. It more matters what God has to say about his faith and his salvation. But yet this passage is in scripture. And I think the reason that it's here in Acts 8 is because Luke is showing us that as the church grows, and we've seen some pretty massive growth within the church, right? We've seen the church grow and there are thousands of Christians that are being saved. And we're even going to see today, the church is growing in the face of persecution, That as Stephen, who we looked at last week, is martyred, the church doesn't shrink or cower because of that, but it actually boldens and increases their faith. But one of the things we have to be careful with when the church grows is that there might be some who would call themselves Christians who don't really pass the test. And so my goal is not to make anyone doubt their salvation. My goal is not to cast doubt on those who god would say are really believers but rather what i want us to see in this text this morning is this is that we should confirm and celebrate biblical conversion conversion being a person who was dead in their trespasses and sins like all of us and who has received the gospel and come to an understanding through of who jesus christ is we're seeing those who are converted into becoming a christian and it's our job as believers not to judge people, not to be harsh towards others, but we as a church confirm who are believers. You know, when we baptize someone, we're not saying that baptism is what saves them. But when someone is baptized, they're making a public profession of faith to the church and to the world. And when they're baptized in our church, we're saying as a congregation, we believe that you've been saved and we commit as your church family to helping you grow in Christ. It's part of our job, our mission as the church, to not only share the gospel with others, but to also have those within our church body who understand and believe the gospel. But we don't just want to confirm biblical conversion, but we want to celebrate it as well. And we even see the apostles do that here in Acts 8. So let's look at three different things. Um, movements of biblical conversion here first we see an occasion for biblical conversion and we see that in verse 1 in verses 1 through 8 look at verse 1 with me it picks up right where chapter 7 left off and it says and Saul approved his execution and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So again, chapter 8 picks, off, picks up right after chapter 7. We saw that Stephen is put on trial. He gives a very lengthy and really beautiful account of what the gospel is. He preaches Christ from the Old Testament as he sees Christ there. And then because of this, because he really condemns these Jewish um, people, the, the Sanhedrin, And he says that they have really rejected Christ, they've rejected the law, they've rejected the temple, they want to kill him. And in fact, they do kill him. And we see, it says, Paul approved of his execution. That word execution also confirms for us that Stephen's death was not lawful. It's a specific Greek word that it's not used with executions that were done based on a trial. Stephen wasn't lawfully killed by the Sanhedrin, but rather it was a mob of people who literally drug him out of the city and stoned him for his faith. And we see because of this, Saul proved of his execution. Now, this doesn't just mean that Saul was happy it happened, although he was, but he saw over it. It said in chapter seven that he was a witness of this execution. This was an official position that someone would have. They would take witness of the execution. We saw everyone else lay their garments down at his feet. Now what Luke is doing in Acts is he is introducing us to this man, Saul of Tarsus, not only because he's important here in Acts chapter 8 and 9, but because he's going to be very important in the rest of the book of Acts. And why is that? Because we know that he ends up becoming Paul, the apostle, after he's converted. And so even as we run into Saul here in Acts 8, don't forget about the fact that later he's converted. And think about as he's killing Christians, what this would do to him later as he finally understands the gospel. He talks about in his letters how he has to deal with the weight of that guilt for killing those who follow Christ. So keep that in the back of your mind as we continue on and later Sermons and Acts, but Luke is doing a bit of foreshadowing here for us. It says there arose that great day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So, because of Stephen's death, from Stephen's death, Christians start being widely persecuted. Now, we've seen different movements of persecution throughout Acts, but they've not been this severe. The apostles were arrested in Acts 3, Peter and John were but they were just let go without anything happening to them. Then in Acts 5, all the apostles are arrested. They're actually beaten at the end of the trial, but no one is killed. Here in Acts 8, we've seen that Stephen died in Acts 7, and now there is more widespread persecution in the church where people are being thrown in jail. Now, many believe that this persecution was actually against the Hellenistic Christians. Now remember who the Hellenistic Christians are. Think back to Acts 6. There's this complaint within the church that the Hellenistic widows are not being taken care of. Who are they? They're the Greeks. They have Greek culture. They have adopted the Greek way of living. They didn't just speak Greek. Remember, Paul spoke Greek, but they adopted their culture. And we know that one of those Greek Christians was Stephen. He was one of the deacons that was appointed. Another Greek Christian or Hellenistic Christian is Philip, who we're going to read about in this passage. And so many believe that this persecution was actually focused on the Hellenistic Christians. That because Stephen was a Hellenist, it might have been that the Hellenistic Jews were persecuting the Hellenistic Christians. And the other reason that, the other thing that might point to this is that the apostles stayed. In Jerusalem. They were all Hebrews, and they had a sense of loyalty that they were going to stay in Jerusalem during this time. So, whether or not this was just against the Hellenistic Christians, whether it was against all the Christians, we're not quite sure. But we do see that the Hellenistic Christians were the ones who really left. They were among the majority of the Christians who left, and we see that even with Philip here. Notice that they scattered out. This persecution is pushing the church outward into Judea and Samaria. Now, this is really important. This is a pivotal moment in Acts, and we'll get to that in a moment. But look at verse two with me. It says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over them. Now, some people try to say that these are Jewish men. Devout is often used with Jewish religious men, that these weren't Christians. They were just Jews that thought it was a shame that Stephen died. I don't find that convincing. I think these are probably Christian men who were devout and devoted, who were upset about Stephen dying. It says they made great lamentation over him. After someone was stoned, you were not allowed to mourn loudly. You're supposed to mourn silently. But this was such an injustice that was done to Stephen that these devout men do mourn very loudly. That word great lamentation means to really cry or wail out as a loud connotation to it. And so they buried Stephen, they're weeping over Stephen. And then Luke takes us back to Saul and it says, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That word ravaging means to tear something apart like a wild animal. My dog, Matt can't have any toys right now that are stuffed because he just tears them apart. And I'll find like a cute duck or a squirrel or something and I thought, oh, this would be nice for Mac to have. But then he's like tearing out the eye and he's taking the head off and he just can't have any toys because he's tearing them to pieces. And then I have to clean them up and it's just a mess. This is what Luke says Paul is doing to the church. He's metaphorically ravaging it. He's taking people from their homes. He's putting them in prison. Now, don't misunderstand what Luke is saying. There are Christians leaving Jerusalem, but they are not leaving and keeping to themselves. One of the cool things that we're going to see about this persecution is that they are actually preaching the gospel as they go. In fact, look at verse 4. Now, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. This persecution is actually a strategic, a big moment in the church, and I want to show you why. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the first sermon we looked at in Acts a couple months ago. Look at verse 8. Remember, the apostles are asking Jesus, Hey, when is the kingdom going to come? When are you going to build your kingdom? This is some of Christ's last moments here on earth, his last words for his disciples. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We saw that in Acts 2, right? And you will be my witnesses. You will testify to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what's really cool about the book of Acts is that Luke is recording Christ giving us an outline of what happens in the book of Acts, of really how the gospel is spread out. We see in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, the gospel is spread in Jerusalem, We see in Acts 8 through about Acts 12, it's spread in Judea and Samaria. We see in Acts 13 to Acts 28, it's spread to the ends of the earth. So actually, this persecution is part of the gospel going out to the rest of the world. And friends, if the gospel didn't go out to the rest of the world, none of us in this room would be Christians because the gospel had to go out to the Gentiles. And so we can be thankful for that. We can see that in God's providence. He uses persecution. For the good of the gospel. And that is because they're not afraid. They don't just go to their houses and hide. But they go on. Preaching the gospel. They go on preaching Christ. Now look at verse 5 with me. We introduce a new character. Who's very important in Acts 8. Philip went down to the city of. Of Samaria and proclaim to them the Christ. This man Philip, remember, he's one of the seven deacons or table servants mentioned in Acts 6. He's one of these Greek Hellenistic Christians, and he becomes a central character in Acts 8 in sharing the gospel. Notice these deacons didn't just handle the physical matters of the church. They actually share the gospel boldly as well we saw that with Stephen we now see that with Philip he's sharing the gospel it says in a city of Samaria we don't know exactly what city this was many try to speculate but I don't know if it matters too much we know that the gospel is going out in the region of Samaria in this chapter and Luke is just recording that it was happening in certain cities or a certain city it says he was proclaiming to them Christ. Now the Samaritans were interesting Jewish people. When uh, Israel was captured, there were some that were left when the Assyrians invaded. There were some that were left in the land and they intermarried with the Assyrians. And the Jewish people did not like that. They were not supposed to intermarry. And so these people became their own kind of set of half Jews called Samaritans. And they were hated by the Jewish people. They were at odds with the Jews. But they were half Jewish. And so there were different parts of Judaism that they understood and that they practiced. They were seen as the enemies of the Jews. In fact, if it had not been for persecution, it is doubtful. It, It causes questions, at least, as to whether or not the apostles would have brought the gospel to them. Now, we know in the gospels... Christ talked to the Samaritan woman, right? The woman at the well. He seemed to want to include them in the gospel. But the Samaritans and the Jews were at odds. Yet because of persecution, the gospel goes out to them. Look we'll at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord, there's that word, hamathuodon. one accord. It's used a lot in Acts to talk about the unity the church had. Here we see the crowd actually with one accord is paying attention They are laser focused. They are intent on what Philip has to say. They said they were paying attention with one accord to Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. There's two reasons why they listened to Philip. Number one, they heard them. And don't miss that. They pay attention to his miracles as well. But they were actually curious, interested in the gospel. They wanted to understand the gospel that Philip was teaching. But they also saw signs. They also saw miracles, things that were being done in the city that surprised them, that amazed them. And he shows us what these are in verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So why were they paying attention to Philip? Because he was casting out demons. He was casting out unclean spirits. He was doing miracles. This was part, not all of his ministry. Remember, they heard him preach the gospel. But this was part of what confirmed to him that this guy was legitimate. Now, what's interesting is that he seems to indicate there's a lot of unclean, demonic spirits here in Samaria. And why do you think that is? We're going to see that Simon the magician was having magic from dark or um, demonic spiritual forces, that's probably why there's so many demons in the city. Just one guess or speculation, but we often see that magic has that connect to the demonic realm, especially in scripture. Now look at verse 8, it says, there was much joy in the city. So because the gospel is being preached, there's much joy here in Samaria. So we see this occasion for the gospel. Now, persecution is not anything that any of us would want to go through, right? None of us want to sign up to go be persecuted, to go be stoned, dragged from our houses, or ravaged by Paul like Mac destroys a little stuffed animal. But persecution is how the gospel is pushed out to Samaria, to the rest of the The world. And so I want us to consider before we move on to our second point do you see God's sovereignty and providence in Acts? How the gospel is pushed out to the rest of the world. How it's God's gospel and He is showing us how it goes out to the Samaritans. And secondly, ask yourself this question not only do you trust God's providence and how He shares the gospel, But do you share the gospel regardless of your circumstances? These Christians in Jerusalem could have said, well, we're being persecuted, so we're just going to take a break. We're not going to go share the gospel. We're not going to go find people to witness to. But yet persecution only makes them more bold. It only encourages them more to go share the gospel. So do do you share the gospel regardless of what circumstances you're in? So we see that the gospel is spread, it is shared in Samaria, and it leads to conversion, or at least some professions of conversion. And that's our second point that we see. We see the profession of biblical conversion. Look with me at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon. And here we, we are introduced to, as I mentioned earlier, one of the key Characters in Acts 8, a man named Simon, this is not Simon Peter, by the way, this was a different Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he himself was somebody great. So he was a magician, he's called Simon the Magician throughout the chapter. He was doing magic, but again, this magic, not magic today, but magic then, had a dark or spiritual power to it. That was demonic, and so he was um, doing these acts here in Samaria, and the people were amazed. Now, something you'll realize or notice in Acts is that the Samaritans here in Acts 8 seem to be pretty easily amazed. They're amazed at the gospel, at Philip healing people. They're also amazed at Simon, who is doing these different magical acts here He says that he himself was somebody great. He was trying to make a name for himself. And this is something interesting we see about Simon. Was that he had a very self-focused, self-centered desire to make a name for himself here. And it says in verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So he has everybody's attention. And why does it say that phrase, from the least to the greatest? He's showing here That it wasn't just the poor people who listened to Simon. It wasn't just the poor people who could be easily um, tricked or who would be easily entertained. But even the wealthy, even the rich people, even the powerful people in Samaria listened to Simon because of his magic. Look at what they said. They said, this man is the power of God and they called him great. They were attributing to Simon the work of God. Simon wants power. He wants prestige. He wants fame even within Samaria. So they pay attention to him and his magic. Now let's see what continues to happen here. It says in verse 11, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So this is a person who is in the back of the minds of the Samaritans. Now we keep reading in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, so these people, these Samaritans, they previously believed Simon the magician, and now we see them as a group here. They believe Philip in verse twelve, as he preached the good news about the kingdom, and were ba- uh, and preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. That word "believes" just means to give a confession of faith. What did they believe in? The good news, the gospel of the the kingdom of God. So they believed the gospel and they were baptized. Now this is just water baptism here. We're going to get into the distinction in just a few moments. So we see the Samaritans make a profession of faith. And Luke is actually contrasting them. And he's starting to do that here in verse 12 with Simon in verse 13. Look at what it says. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing great signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, this passage would be much easier if I could tell you, oh, their word for believing and the word that is used with Simon, when it says he believed, are two different words, but they're not. It's the same word. And so many people will say, well, Simon believed. That's what the text said, and that is what the text said. But I want to point out a couple things to you here. First of all, it doesn't say what he believed. Do you notice that? It says he believed or it says in verse 12, the Samaritans believed in the good news of the kingdom of God. It doesn't tell us what Simon believed here. It just says that he believed. Now that's not enough for us to say that he's not a Christian. And again, I'm not necessarily trying to kick him out of heaven, but I am trying to show that Luke is casting doubt on the salvation of simon and here's why we keep looking at verse 13 it says he himself believed he was baptized but again this is water baptism here and notice what it says after that it says he continued with philip this is not the normal word for discipleship but this means to follow someone around that you're kind of amazed with this is like the paparazzi with a celebrity This is someone who is kind of amazed or enthralled with someone. He's not really being discipled by Philip, but he's just following him around. And why is that? Look at the rest of the verse. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now again, there's not enough here for me to say, oh, Simon's not a Christian. But what seems to be Simon's motivation in understanding the gospel, in following Philip and becoming a Christian Does it say he believed the gospel? Does it say he believed in the kingdom of God? No, it says he was amazed with the signs and wonders. He's a man that loves power, that loves magic, that loves to be popular. And he sees that Philip is gaining a lot of that attention from the Samaritans. We see here this profession of salvation and again it's salvation is something that is between you and god it's not my place to necessarily tell you that you're not saved however the gospel is clear on what salvation is we've been talking about in sunday school in the last couple weeks um, things that separate us as believers and again there are different churches that i think preach the gospel but just have doctrinal differences There are different people, you know, I've said before that you could be a Catholic and be saved. However, you're not a Catholic and saved if you believe Catholic doctrine, if you believe in a works-based salvation. And so I'm not trying to judge anyone's heart, but rather in looking at Simon, we want to see what does Luke actually tell us about his faith? What is the evidence of his salvation? We see, at least from the start... While the text says he believed, we're not sure exactly what he believed in. And at least what he's focused in so far is the miracles, the signs, and the attention that that gained him. Let's look at, thirdly, the evidence of conversion. The evidence of conversion. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria... Had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the moment when I was reading Acts 8 at the beginning of the week that I stopped and said, Wait, what is happening here? Because we talked about all the way in Acts 2. Spirit baptism follows immediately at salvation. Someone is saved, they're baptized into the body of Christ spiritually. Yet, these Samaritans seem to be saved, and they're not spirit baptized yet. They're only baptized with water. So, why does the Holy Spirit wait to fall on them? Well, it says that the apostles would go and lay hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit would come after that. And so some have taken this text to mean that you need to have hands laid on you to receive the Holy Spirit. Some have taken this text to mean that the Holy Spirit and spirit baptism is what imparts spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and things like that onto a Christian. And I don't think that's what Luke is trying to show us here. Rather, within the plan of God, there's three different times where it talks about the Spirit of God coming down on a group of people. We see it in Acts two. In fact, go back to Acts two for just a moment. Go back to Acts two for just a moment. We see in verse in verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongue as tongues of fire appeared and rested on them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So we see the Holy Spirit came. And then right after that, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit of God comes to the Jews in Jerusalem. We've just seen in Acts 8 how the Spirit of God comes onto the Samaritans. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 10 for just a moment. Look at verse 44. Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius. He's the first Gentile that is saved. And look at verse 44. While Peter was staying, saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Remember what I said about Acts 1. The gospel is spread in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, I think what we're seeing here is the Spirit is specially marked in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth after that. Go back to Acts 8. So the apostles would go and confirm this work being done in Samaria. This would also serve to dispel any disunity. What do I mean by that? I said earlier, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They were at odds. The the Jews thought the Samaritans were dirty, that they were half-breeds is what they called them. And so, to make sure there wasn't a division in the church, the apostles are sent down. They confirm that the Samaritans are saved. And the Samaritans at that point receive the Holy Spirit. Now, after this, any Samaritan that's saved, I believe, received the Holy Spirit at Salvation and spirit baptism but this was a special event in acts so we see that these samaritans who believed received the holy spirit but look at verse 18 we run back into simon now when simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands what does he do he offers them money Now, I'm going to argue that I don't think Simon received the Spirit. and Here's why. The Samaritans who believed and Simon seem to be contrasted with each other. So it says they believed and heard the gospel in verse 12. In verse 13, then Simon believed. Then here, they received the Holy Spirit. And I actually think, if I can just speculate for a moment, that as they're coming to Simon to confirm that he's a Christian, This is what he says to them. He says, give me this power also. How much money is it going to cost for me to buy this power of giving the Holy Spirit to someone? It's quite the statement that he makes here. I also would just say this, that if Simon just had received the Holy Spirit from the apostles, it would be pretty amazing that his first words would be, hey, let me pay you for the power of the Holy Spirit. So that I can make a lot of money from this and give this power to others as well. We see that Simon's heart here is focused on, again, what can I gain for myself? How can I make a name for myself? How can I buy this power of God for money? And Peter recognizes this. And notice what he says to him in the next verse. It says in verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God for money. He's saying you're on the way to destruction. You're on the way to hell. And he says you can take your money with you. Peter is not motivated by money. We've seen that throughout Acts that he doesn't have money first of all. And he's not motivated by using the gospel to get more money. Let me just say this. There's many People out there that call themselves Christians who try to say they have spiritual power and they try to use it to make themselves rich. I would just encourage them to read Acts 8 because Peter's showing us that this is not a lifestyle that you want to adopt for yourself. He says, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy this gift of God. Look at what he says in verse 21 You have neither part nor lot. In this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He's saying you don't have a share in this ministry. You're not part of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Because you don't have a right heart. Because in your heart, you're focused on your desires for wealth, for power, for more money. He says, Simon, you have a heart issue. This isn't about how much money you can buy the Holy Spirit for. But you don't have a changed heart before God. And so in verse 22, he issues a final warning for him. Look at what he says. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if it's possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He says, repent, repent, turn from your ways, believe the gospel he says, if it's possible. Now, I think it is possible. And I think Simon at this moment could have repented and become a Christian. But Peter is saying you are on a dangerous road. You're on a dangerous path, Simon, because you have a heart that is not changed. As we think about biblical repentance, what is it about? It is about the heart. It is about a heart that wants to turn away from our sin and selfishness and turn towards christ and his gospel in verse 23 says this is why his heart is so messed up is so wrong he says in verse 23 for i see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of deceit gall is a type of poison your heart is a poison of bitterness you are in the bonds of iniquity you're bonded you're shackled your chain up in your sin so peter calls on him to repent and no one is simon's response in verse 24 and simon answered pray for me to the lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me some people think that this is him repenting him telling peter he wants to change Some people think that he's further condemning himself because he's not praying, he's not repenting, but he's asking Peter to repent for him. And I would say I don't think Luke wants to make it clear for us. I think Luke, in writing this, wants to leave the door open for us. He wants us to stop and consider the fate of Simon the Magician. Did he repent did he believe the gospel? Now I can tell you in church history, Simon the Magician is associated with the Gnostic heresy, a heresy that we see throughout really the second century of Christianity, and many have called him a heretic and not a Christian. So if you look at church history, it would say Simon probably didn't repent. But Luke leaves us on the edge here to think about biblical conversion. I don't want to end the sermon on a sad note or a somber note. And in fact, Luke doesn't even do that for us either. Look at verse 25. He focuses on the good. He says, Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages in Samaria. So they go out, they preach the gospel more here. And then as they're going back, they're preaching the gospel As they go in Samaria. And the text ends. And it ends with both a sad account of Simon's faith or lack of faith. I would call it an illusion of faith. But it also ends in hope. And what is that? That people in Samaria heard the gospel. And for that, we can celebrate. We don't just want to turn into judges, people who are always trying to examine. We want to celebrate with those who truly understand the gospel. So as we close this morning, I want us to think about how do we evaluate biblical conversion? First of all, listen to someone's testimony. Listen to their testimony. Does their testimony evidence a gospel change? Now, I'm not saying do they have the most exciting testimony. My testimony isn't that exciting It might not be as exciting as yours or someone else's. But in their testimony, do you hear that they were a sinner, separated from God, that they believed the gospel, repented of their sins, and that they put their faith and trust in Christ? Listen to their testimony and secondly, confirm that they understand the gospel. Now, they might not be a Ph.D. theological scholar, but do they understand the gospel? Do they understand the gospel of God? And then lastly, examine their fruit along the way. I'm not saying that we should judge them unnecessarily, but look to see if they have grown and changed in Christ. This is a sombering text, a hard text for us to understand, but it is an important text for us to acknowledge that we really see here both an illusion of faith and, But don't miss the fact that we do see genuine conversion in Acts 8. And that spreads the gospel even out farther. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the rest of our service. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text here in Acts 8. We thank you that um, you've given us your word, that you've inspired it. We thank you that we can trust in you. And God, this is a hard text for us to understand. We don't want to be overly judgmental towards anyone. I know that's not anyone's desire here. But God, we do want to understand what conversion is. We know that it's based on the gospel. That your son, Jesus Christ, was perfect. That he came into an imperfect world. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again so that we could have victory in him. So, Father, as we go from this place, would you help us to share the gospel with others, to confirm faith when it needs to be confirmed, but most of all to celebrate conversion when we clearly see it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.